continuing through the story of Daniel. We're in chapter 4 today. So go ahead and take out your Bibles to chapter 4. And up to this point, we've been seeing this cycle that King Nebuchadnezzar seems to have found himself in, where all throughout the last few chapters, especially through chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see this cycle of him seeing clear evidence of a living and sovereign God. And we even see him exclaiming and acknowledging his sovereignty. And yet, his life is still void of any meaningful change. And the mark of real faith goes beyond just an intellectual understanding and an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Real faith brings about real life change. Real faith brings about real heart change. And in here, yesterday, we were, we were reading one of my favorite stories from the Bible, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, under threat of death, faced with a fiery furnace, given the option to either bow down or die in the blaze. And they simply responded. They were defiant in their response. They said, King, we will not. We serve a God who is all-powerful and fully capable of delivering us from the furnace and from your hands, O king. But even if he doesn't, we know that he is still good and that he is still sovereign. And the king has them thrown in the furnace. And ironically enough, the only death that is experienced in this whole story are the soldiers who were tasked with throwing them into the furnace. Because the flames were so hot, the only ones that were killed were the soldiers, not even the ones who were in the furnace. And then we see this image of God's presence with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And when they come out, the last verses of, of uh, chapter, chapter 3, they say, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. This guy has a real affinity for violence. Uh, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So here, once again, we see him acknowledging something that we already know to be true, but there isn't any sign of repentance. There isn't any sign of him turning from his sinful ways and knowing what it means to be under the sovereignty and lordship of God. And then we continue in chapter 4. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented 
and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. But finally, Daniel came into my presence and told, and told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar. Bel, man, I still can't get that. Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a, loud, in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants and the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches to the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, believe the stump, bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against the, my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins 
by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be then that your prosperity will continue. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you. This is saying seven years until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar has a cycle of sin in his life. Specifically, we see the sin of idolatry. After the first dream, when he has these dreams of a, of a statue... And Daniel interprets what that dream is. Even with that knowledge, he turns and builds for himself a statue. Not only for himself to worship, but he issues a decree and he says, All nations, everyone who falls under my reign, I'm issuing a decree that you must come and worship this. There is the sin of idolatry. But sin of idolatry is not just reserved for those like Nebuchadnezzar who construct a physical image and worship it. The sin of idolatry is in all of us because we all are guilty of the sin of having placed our affections and our worship on something other than God, on something other than the one who is worthy of it. We talked about this briefly. There are idols in your life. And when we talk about idols, yes, we think about a physically constructed image of a deity or a, or a small g God that we worship. But idols can also be the good things in life. Idols can also be the good things that you have in life that in and of themselves do not have a sinful nature. But any time we fall into the trap of placing our affections and our adoration on something other than God, we are committing the sin of idolatry. Anytime we choose to serve the will of anything other than God's will, we are committing the sin of idolatry. Anytime we are taking bad things, but even good things, Good things in our lives, the blessings that we have to enjoy, can become sinful things if we allow them to become ultimate in our lives. If we allow ourselves to foster and develop a love and an affection for the good things in life and place that above the love and affection that we have for our almighty creator who is sovereign over all, this is idolatry. This is the sin that we are falling into in idolatry. And when we examine the life of Nebuchadnezzar, 
we see this cycle of sin that we falls into, and maybe we can relate to some of these, but it, it leads into a discussion that is necessary for us to have. And I want to start with this with kind of a, a state of theology, a state of the union when it comes to our theology in specific. There were some recent studies that had some alarming discoveries in it. It revealed that only about 14% of young men and women aged 18 to 34 years old, 18 to 34-year-old evangelicals strongly disagree with the idea that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And 65% either somewhat agree or strongly agree. And many of us have the same mindset. And yet God's word teaches us that by nature we are children of wrath. In Ephesians 2.3 it says, by nature... We are children of wrath. By nature, we are children of sin. By nature, we have a natural proclivity to serve something other than the one who is worthy to be served, the one who is worthy to be honored, the one who is worthy to be glorified. We have natural inclinations to serve ourselves, to honor ourselves to bring glory to ourselves. And it's an inclination that began all the way back in the beginning. If we want to have a proper understanding of the doctrine of sin, we need to go back to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, we see the creation account where it said, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then in verse 6, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And then in verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And then verse 26, God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own, own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created, he created them. And so he creates Adam. Skipping ahead to verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. He presents Eve to Adam. And Adam sees a beautiful woman for the first time in his life. And he says, whoa. He becomes a poet. 
On the spot, he says this. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Because it was perfect. There was no shame because it was perfect. But then... We come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Did, did God really say that? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were both naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Already passing the blame. Mm-hmm. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Chapter 3. And we've already screwed it up. Adam and Eve were given what's called federal headship over all of humanity. They were representations. They were representing us. They were representing all of humanity. And when they chose sin... When they chose a different path, the impact became felt throughout the whole world and throughout the rest of human history. Because in the beginning, they were given a choice. In the beginning, they were created. In the beginning, they were in perfect unity with God. It was a loving relationship. But the thing about love is that there needs to be a choice. Because love without choice isn't love at all. Love without the choice to reject, the option to reject is completely meaningless. Forced love, because it's your only option, is not love. Love always is a choice. And it is a daily choice. Because sometimes we ask, well, why did God put the tree in, in, in the garden in the first place? Could have saved ourselves a whole lot of trouble without that, because without the tree, there would be no love. Because without the tree, we couldn't be in a loving relationship with him. Without the option to reject, we wouldn't be able to engage in a meaningful, loving relationship with him. That's what love is. 
It's a daily choice. God gave Adam and Eve the option. He gave them the choice to reject. They were created with a capacity to worship, but a choice and a decision to make as to who or what they would worship. And in a moment of weakness, they chose themselves. Why? They weren't forced to do so. It's because the serpent was crafty. It's because there was an enemy that was prowling from the very beginning. As we've said before, we have a full-time enemy plotting against us. But Satan doesn't need to do much to destroy you if he can simply distract you. Satan doesn't need to destroy you if he can simply deter your worship and your glory onto something else. Distraction is one of his main weapons. And in the beginning, in Genesis, what we see him do is he causes Adam and Eve to doubt. He causes them to doubt how bad sin is, and he causes them to question how good God is. And all throughout history, sin is rooted in these two uncertainties. Time and time again, he causes us to doubt, is sin really that bad? And he causes us to doubt, God can't possibly be that good. And we become ensnared with these false narratives. We become ensnared with these false truths and we find ourselves again and again in this cycle of idolatry, in this cycle of placing our affections and our attentions on something other than God. But for as long as we are placing our affection and our attention on things of this world, things that are broken and things that are temporary, our hope that is placed in those temporary things will yield temporary results, will yield broken results, will yield imperfect results. We need to call sin what the Bible calls it. We can't soften what sin is with modern expressions that we've taken from our culture because you will always be able to justify sin. You'll always be able to make sense of it. Why? Because we're people of compromise. A little compromise here. It's just a piece of fruit. Surely it won't lead to death. Surely that won't be the repercussions of this decision. We need to call sin out by what it is. Sin, by any other term, by any other name, still has eternal implications because sin is essentially an intentional departure from God. When you read the rest of the story in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve sin. And as a result, death, is introduced to the narrative. Because death becomes necessary. You have this problem of sin and something has to be done about sin. But he's talking about there is a spiritual death and we see it exemplified in the garden. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. In the beginning when heaven and earth occupied the same space, they dwelled, they were united with, they communed with God. Why? Because they were holy. 
And then sin enters and it separates us because what is holy and what is unholy cannot occupy the same space. What is perfect and what is imperfect cannot be in the same space. And so they were cast out. They were separated. They were dead. Death is separation. From that moment, they were dead in their sin. It was a departure from God. Sin is any act or thought that breaks a command or instruction from God. And our sin, it might affect those around us or maybe directed at someone in particular, but we need to see that all sin is primarily against God because even when we sin against others, you're sinning against someone that was made in the image of an almighty and sovereign creator. So when I sin against you, I sin directly against the one who created you. Sin does not just affect us. It's not just a sin, a, a sin against others. It's a sin against the creator. It's an attack on God's character. It's a denial of God's truth. It's an affront to his very being. And sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try to desperately fulfill it without God. It comes when we have a natural desire to worship. You have a natural inclination to serve something, to worship something, to glorify something. You have a capacity to do that in the same way that all of creation cries out and reveals his nature, reveals his glory. God's glory is revealed in nature. God's glory is revealed in his word, but God's glory can also be revealed in you. But we choose to have the glory of other things revealed in us because we choose it. It comes from a perfectly natural desire, a longing or an ambition that we have but then we desperately try to fulfill that desire with something other than God. That is what sin is. Yet the penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. I think a lot of times we look at different sins and we kind of gauge like, oh, this is a bad sin, but it's not as bad as your sin. Like, I have sin in my life, okay? But it's nothing like your sin. It's nothing like, oh, I know what your sin looks like, all right? I've got a little bit of sin. You've got a whole lot of sin, that you're dealing with. The penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one sinned against. In the same way that the, the, the strength of your faith has nothing to do with how much faith you have and everything to do with the magnitude of the one that you place your faith in. It has nothing to do with how strong you can make your faith. It's about how strong the one is who you place your faith in. In the same way, the penalty for your sin has nothing to do with the magnitude of the sin itself, the measure of the sin itself, and everything to do with the magnitude of the one that you are sinning against, an eternal and sovereign God. Paul tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin is death, is separation. If you, if you sin, 
if you sin against a rock, if you sin against a log, you're, you're not really guilty of anything. If you sin against your friend, if you sin against your parents, if you sin against a teacher, if you sin against your peers, you're absolutely guilty. And ultimately, if you sin against a holy and eternal God, you are definitely guilty and you are worthy of eternal punishment. Again, because it's not the magnitude of your sin, it's the magnitude of the one that you have sinned against. And to be Christian is to realize that in your sin, you were separated from God's presence and you deserve nothing but God's wrath. Friends, you need to understand, because of sin in your life, hell has become our default destination. Do you understand that? Why? Because there is sin in your life. There is a wage to be paid for sin. Something has to be done about sin. Why? Because God is just. There is a punishment that is due. There is a, pay, a payment that is owed. There is a debt that must be paid. And the good news of the gospel begins with the first part of the gospel, which is not good news. The bad news of the gospel, the way it starts, it says, you're not good enough. Why? Because you are dead in your sin. And you alone do not have the power to bring life to what is dead. That is what is required, and that is the only way out of this. We will never know how glorious the cross is until we know how serious our sin is. We can't start talking about the power of the cross until you realize how necessary it really is. The message of the gospel Sometimes we just want to focus on the happy part, but you need to understand the real need that you have to be saved from the wage of your sin. Death. A spiritual, physical, eternal death that is the wage of sin because God is just. But the good news of the gospel is that God isn't fair. He is just but he's not fair. And tonight we're gonna to be diving into what that means and why it certainly works to our benefit that he is merciful, that he extends forgiveness, that he extends grace, not because we deserve it, not because we are good, but because he alone is good. That is the hope that we have. Let's come together tonight and discover and celebrate that together, that death no longer has a hold on us and death no longer has the final say, not because what, it, what we have done, God wants communion with you. But sin has separated you from his presence. Something needs to be done about that. And there is nothing you can do about that. And we will never know and fully grasp and understand how glorious the cross is until we know how serious our sin is. We can never truly know and celebrate the saving grace of Jesus' death on the cross until we first acknowledge and fully understand our need to be saved. You are dead in your sin. And no amount of good deeds 
no amount of good effort will ever be able to reconcile you back into the presence of the sovereign of the one who is holy. You must become holy. So tonight when we come back into this place, let's find out what that looks like. Let's find out the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's find out the hope that we have, what, what causes us to, to glorify him and respond in worship. That's what we're going to be doing this evening. Because you've been given a choice. To love him or love something outside of him. But because he is good, there's a gift of salvation and grace that has been extended to you. But again, you are given a choice to accept that gift or reject it. And just like we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, time and time and time and time again, we see the dangers of cultural part-time Christianity, where he claims the name of God with his lips, and then he turns and lives according to a, a completely different set of values and beliefs. What is causing people to leave the church in, dro in droves these days? It's because they come to church and they see us proclaiming the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of God with our lips, and then they watch the way we live for the rest of the week. And it's been said that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable about the church. How do we begin to start to change that narrative? You have the opportunity to change that narrative. You have the opportunity to have impact in that. And God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to dive back into Daniel, to be through this book all throughout this week, not just focusing on the stories of the book of Daniel, but to be, to be learning about your nature. Your glory and your sovereignty is the cornerstone through every verse, through every chapter of this book. We see your faithfulness. We see how no matter what man may sit on a worldly throne, you sit on the ultimate throne. And God, may, may we be led in a better understanding of our sin so that we can have a better understanding of our need for a savior. Not by our own means, not by our own efforts. Your gospel shows us that we are not good enough, that there is a standard for salvation and that, that standard is perfection and we all fall short. And the bad news of the gospel is that we're not good enough and there's nothing we can do on our own to meet that standard, but we thank you for the hope that we have in the good news of the gospel, that there was someone who can. Be with us throughout this day as we continue to engage in worship with the way that we treat one another, with the way that we play with one another, with the way that we engage with one another. As we come back tonight to celebrate and acknowledge and respond to the joy and the hope and the confidence that we have in the truth of the gospel message. It's in your name we pray this morning. Give us a good day. Amen.